I think one of the things that has happened over the past few years is we've, we've lost contact um, with a lot of people, with a lot of communities, um, with people in our own businesses, etc. And it's been amazing for me since, well, since that COVID has kind of um, <clears throat> taken a back seat that we've been able to speak at conferences where people, businesses are getting together for the first time. They're having their first conference in two years. And it's amazing for me, every time I go to one of those, the first thing that I see and I notice is people going up to each other, shaking hands or putting their arms around each other, and they start telling stories. And stories are such a vital part of our life, and I'm going to share some of those stories with you tonight, and I, I really hope that um, you're going to get something from them. I love adventure, obviously, <laughs> and I love being a South, Africa, South African, like hugely proudly South African. Adventure means so much to me, but I think... When I look at the people around me here, I think all of your lives are based on adventure in any case. I mean, adventure really forms the basis of most um, business enterprise. It is, it's what drives scientific discoveries, builds nations, um, and really is at the heart and foundation of, of many relationships, especially mine with my wife. I know my, my adventure with my wife is probably the greatest expedition um, I've ever been on. But I'm going to ask you to picture the scene right now, and I'm going to do this a few times as we go through this evening. Um, so picture this. This is a place in Antigua in the Caribbean called English Harbor. Now I'm going to ask you to try and put that in midnight. It's midnight. Uh, it's February the 28th, a couple of years ago. I've just rowed in there with a good friend of mine, Bill Godfrey, on a seven-meter rowing boat. Our hands are raw and blistered almost to the bone. We haven't slept for one second in four days because the last four days of that row uh, was in a massive storm. And as we're weaving our way through all of these boats and super yachts, they get bigger and bigger as you go down. It's a couple of kilometers long to the quayside where pretty much the whole island had come down to see these two mad South Africans arriving on their rowing boat. There were two clear sounds that I could hear coming across the water. And the first one was people singing in Kosisikilele. Antigua and the Caribbean are full of South African sailors, and they'd all come down to see um, these guys arriving. And then there was another sound that we heard, and, um, and what's that sound that South Africans just don't seem to get away from ever at all? Vuvuzelas, right. Okay. I don't know where they got them from, but there were Vuvuzelas there. And then getting off onto the quayside, Grabbing my wife, holding the South African flag above um, Billy and my heads was such an amazing feeling for me. You know, South Africans, wherever I've traveled in the world, I've always been greeted with open arms because South Africans are known as a tenacious country, as tenacious people, people with resilience and grit and perseverance. It's just the way we are wired. Adventure is, is rooted deeply within our souls and the way we do things. So every time I reverse out of my driveway to go on an expedition, something quite profound happens to me. And again, I'm going to ask you to picture the scene because I don't have a picture of this. I'm sitting in my bucky. Okay, so it's, it's any of the expeditions. And it's the same scene that unfolds every single time. I'm reversing out of my driveway. I look at, I live 20 kilometers north of East London. Um, Alec didn't say anything about East London. Most people keep quiet about East London. When, you say, when, I, when I tell people I'm from East London, they kind of get this glazed look. Is anybody here from East London? I've got to be careful what I say. Yes. 
So they kind of get this glazed look over their eyes, and it's like East London and PE are the same place. Any case, it's not PE, it's in East London. So I'm sitting in my bucky, and I'm reversing out of the driveway, and I look at my house, and I look at my garden. I have my beautiful wife, Kim, sitting next to me. I have my daughter sitting behind us, Hannah, in the back seat. And in the back of the bucky, I have my last-minute things that I need to take with me to the start of the expedition. Sled skis or whatever it is, food, you know those last-minute things. The rest has been taken up ahead of us, especially the big expeditions. Look at my house, I look at my garden, and I think two thoughts. The first one is, look at everything, and I think, geez, I wonder, I wonder if I'm ever going to see this place again. Because that's kind of the nature of the expeditions that are going, especially the big ones. But most importantly, the second thought. I turn to Kim, and I look at her, and I say, Kim, I know this sounds weird, but isn't this just so wildly exciting? <laughs> Because the very next time you and I drive back into this driveway, a whole story is going to have unfolded. A whole journey is going to have taken place. Just now wonder what that story is going to be. And I have always known that that story is going to be filled with amazing things, holding the South African flag above the South Pole, rowing across the ocean, whatever it is. What a great privilege it was going to be um, to do that. Meeting incredible people, other adventurers, amazing leaders, but I've never known what that story is going to be. But I've also known that that story is going to be filled with hardship, way more than I could have ever anticipated, planned for, prepared for, etc. because that's just the nature of some of these expeditions. I've always boxed way above my weight category on my expeditions. I thought I'd put this in quickly, because our ability to achieve success is not automatic or inevitable. Every step towards achieving a great goal demands, sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. I think those are the three words that I really want to, want to speak about because I think in the end, as South Africans, we've got used to this and it's become part of our daily lives. And that has really built us into a nation of really strong people. So it requires leaders and people who are dedicated, disciplined, and infinitely passionate. So knowing this and reversing out of my driveway, and there are many other thoughts um, that go through my head, um, but those, those are probably the most important ones. So there's going to be a story that needs to be told. I'm going to share some of those stories with you now. But while I'm sitting here, I know that I'm speaking to incredibly successful people here this evening. And I know that you have all amazing stories to tell, amazing journeys. You could stand up here and do exactly the same job. But you, you from this time to the next business conference, or this one next year, you're going to have a story that needs to be told, a whole one year is going to go past. We don't know what that story is going to be, but I know all of us want to, be, want to tell a continued successful and significant story. So what has adventure done for me? Adventure has really allowed me to surround myself with the most amazing team of people. It's allowed me to meet people in all parts of this planet and continue to inspire and motivate and, and teach people, um, really, on, in every corner of this planet. It's uh, allowed me to test myself physically and mentally way past those points that I, could ever, that I ever thought I would be able to handle. In some of the world's most rugged, remote, desolate um, environments, I've suffered much. We all know to achieve something great in life requires suffering. I've suffered much, I've cried, I have laughed hysterically actually in this expedition. I've danced on some of Africa's great lake shores. I have stared at um, 
sorry, I've had long conversations with God and I've stared at his galactic outbursts. I've trembled in some of this planet's mighty storms. We'll talk about this one a little bit later. I've made friends with fish. Now, some of you are probably looking at that going, mm, Dorado, delicious. Who here just quickly has eaten Dorado before? Sis, we'll tell you a story now. I've made friends with birds. I have trekked through some avatar-like forests in Central Africa and Central America. I've come face to face with amazing animals, rare, wild, and extremely dangerous at the same time. I've got lost in wonder. And this is not physically lost, obviously, because I wouldn't be here right now, but lost in wonder in the South Pole and up uh, in the North Pole. I've risked much. This is starting to make sense about your journey. I've dared greatly. I've triumphed, and I've also failed. But in every single, every single time I start a journey, I go, okay, so what is the adventure in this for me, Peter van Ketz? What am I going to learn out of this? Uh, and how am I going to share my story with other people to hear? There's been many times in my life where I've stood and I've gone, geez, I wish I could just show somebody where I am right now or explain what I'm feeling right now um, to people. And I'm going to try and get that through to you now. Oops, sorry, I'm not used to this clicker. So, in a year's time, when we tell that significant story, and that successful story, I would love to hear it, and I hope one day we'll get to meet again. So what is success? For me, success is being able to achieve the vision that we set out to achieve in our lives, simply put. That's obviously layered underneath that. So a very famous study um, was done um, at Harvard Business uh, School, and Angela Duckworth talks about in a, in, a, uh, in a book, Grit, fantastic book. Um, and so what they did was they got a whole lot of successful businesses and people, and they tried to study them and work out what are the principles that they apply to their business and themselves um, so that they are, are successful in the end. And they wanted to find what are those common characteristics amongst those organizations and people. At the end of their study, to cut a long story short, their conclusion was that the secret to success is, in fact, still a secret. Doesn't that seem like a waste of money? They showed that, amongst other things, coming from a top socioeconomic background would not guarantee success. Going to the best schools, going to the best universities, getting a degree from Harvard Business School would not automatically guarantee success. Having the highest IQ in this room would not guarantee success. So then what does? So they found within 93% of the people and organizations they studied, there was a common characteristic. And that characteristic was a significant predictor in that person's ability to achieve and sustain success significantly. And that was something that all of us know very well. Fussbait. Thought I'd put it there to start off with. We can say other words like grits, resilience. They mean slightly different things resolve, but I like the Isikosa word. I'm from the Eastern Cape. We have an amazing Isikosa word, and it is Nyamazela. Nyamazela is a beautiful word. I was speaking to a Kosa woman the other day, and she said, you know, Pete, Nyamazela doesn't just mean perseverance. It doesn't just mean endurance. It means to go on a journey, and during that journey, when you are faced by 
a moment of imminent disaster and you're able to overcome that moment and then the next and the next and then achieve success in the end, that package is nyamazela. Isn't that insane? Beautiful word. And you'll see why that word is such an important word to me uh, later on in my um, talk. So as, a, as an adventurer, I've had lots of opportunity to practice nyamazela. Many expeditions. Um, so some of my favorite ones. This one here is the Great Nile-Congo Divide. We did a couple of years ago, and that was really trekking um, and mountain biking a series of mountains and the Ruanzoris, uh, basically from um, southern Rwanda right up to DRC and Uganda. Uh, and it's a, it's a series of mountains and volcanoes that split the Nile, Nile River on the east and the Congo River um, on the west. We had quite a lot of trouble um, in some of the areas, and we were, we were actually pushed out of some of the areas, so it still hasn't been done properly, um, just because we had to move off the Great Nile-Congo Divide. Um, Burundi and Rwanda had um, some skirmishes about a couple of weeks before we arrived there, and they were really not happy with us trekking through that area. Um, so when somebody in Central Africa starts speaking to you in a, a very deep, fast, urgent pitch with an AK-47, you move out the way um, quite quickly. Uh, but it was absolutely spectacular, and you'll see some photographs of this and lots of hard lessons learned again from this expedition. Um, and one of the greatest encounters, obviously, was um, a time that we came across a group of gorillas and spent some time with them. The gorillas have also been definitely affected by COVID. Um, you know, they have 93% of human DNA. Um, so they're sus as susceptible to COVID as, as humans are. So their um, guards weren't able to be with them as much, and there was quite a bit of poaching um, that has happened over the past few years. Another one of mine, this is a, a classic one, was a, a race that I took part um, in with a very good friend of mine, Bill Godfrey, the one I was speaking about right in the beginning. Uh, and the race's name was the Woodvale Transatlantic Rowing Race. Um, it is a five and a half uh, thousand kilometer row from the Canary Islands just off the coast of Morocco, across the southern part of the North Atlantic Ocean um, to Antigua in the background. Oh, sorry, on the other end. Um, the race itself completely 100% unsupported and unassisted, which means from this moment, this is at the start line, from this moment till we got to, the, till we got to Antigua on the other side, we would not see a soul. No boat following. People said, did you get onto a boat and sleep? Nothing, 100%. We rode this boat here at Gulma Challenger and shifts off. Now try and picture this again. And shifts off an hour and a half on, an hour and a half off. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 50 days and 12 hours. <laughs> there wasn't one second on this row that one of us wasn't rowing, except for Christmas Day. And we were so excited about Christmas Day, because Christmas Day, we were looking forward to a half an hour where we would sit down together and eat our boil-in-the-bag chicken and herb dumplings. Woo! <laughs> Look, is that what we're having for dinner tonight? Is it? Okay, excellent. So, why would I be excited about chicken, uh, boil in the bag chicken and herb dumplings? Okay, so if you've ever done any hiking in mountains, you may know freeze-dried food and you may know boil, uh, boil in the bag food. Boil in the bag food is ready-made food, all in one super heavy, great, delicious, high nutrition food. But it's heavy. We wanted to win this race and break the world record. 
None of that was going to go on board, okay, except for Christmas lunch. So the rest was um, freeze-dried food. But we had a trick with freeze-dried food. Freeze-dried food is amazing. All you do is you pour boiling water in it, not the South African version that we get. It's terrible. Um, there is a, a Norwegian and a British one, which is much better. So you just pour boiling water in, and you eat it. Okay. But to consume the amount of calories, sorry, to eat the amount of uh, calories that, you, uh, that you're using would take too much time. So we had to do something about that. We needed to add something to our food. And that's where olive oil comes into it. 100 mils of olive oil is equivalent to a four-course meal, something like we're going to have this evening, in one shot. So we'd take our freeze-dried food, mix it with water, pour 100 mils of olive oil, and eat it in. Four-course meal in one, so you got five courses in one bag. And the rest of the time, so three or four times a day, we'd take a little mug, pour olive oil in, and swallow it down. <laughs> so obviously now I can't do olive oil anymore. Okay. <laughs> So um, we do something else now. Who of you here, by the way, got given cod liver oil as a child? <laughs> yeah, there are not many under 30s here today. I don't know why our parents thought that cod liver oil was uh, the medical solution to most ailments of our time. So if you've had cod liver oil, how does that make you feel? Speak about it. It gives you that funny feeling right here. Okay, so olive oil does that for me now. Okay, I can't do olive oil um, anymore. So... This is day eight of the row. Billy has just got off the satellite phone radio interview with John Robbie on 702. And during that discussion, John Robbie says to him, oh, Billy, and by the way, do you guys know that you're in first position? We said, what? Excellent. So day eight, our dream was starting to come true. Vision that we had for this race, all the planning, all the preparation, all the millions of things, two years of solid preparation was all starting to pay off. Billy's just got out and told me the news, and that's how this photograph um, was taken. Our objective was to win the race and to break the, break the world record. From the very first discussion that we had, we said from that moment on, once we agreed to doing it, everything that we did was in preparation for this moment and then obviously crossing um, the finish line. Adventurers love to tell you how much they suffer. Okay, pull their teeth out with pliers, cut their fingers off with frostbite, they love showing photographs like that. I'm going to spare some of that uh, with you this evening. But let me just tell you about, there were four storms during this row, about the last storm. The last storm lasted four days. And that's when I rode in without any sleep. In that last storm, the wind went from five kilometers per hour up to 110 kilometers per hour. So, and on and off, okay? So if you've been in anything over 70 or 80 kilometers per hour, you'll understand the ferocity of that wind. So it's basically like us in the rowing boat in that picture that you saw of us crossing the Barents Sea, except it's a seven-meter rowing boat. The swell went from a meter up to 12 meters. Mm, maybe it's a little bit higher than the apex of this roof. These are not breaking waves, okay, like you would see in the perfect storm in Hollywood. Okay, it's just not like that out at sea. These are massively thick swells, 12 meters high, running at high speed across the ocean. And then because the wind blows so consistently day after day, and especially now during a storm, it creates those white horses, making it really big, six to eight feet big, maybe even bigger, breaking over the boat. With lightning in, in parts of the storm striking 100, 200 meters away from the boat. 
And if you want to experience that, maybe climb the berg tomorrow afternoon and hang around for a bit. To be in a, in a lightning storm, there is no more frightening place on the planet for me. This is my experience than being on a seven-meter rowing boat in the middle of the ocean in an electric storm with swollen wind like that. It is a, it's an amazing place to be. And when we finished that row, we finished it, as I said, on, at midnight on that last row, and we had all those boats to get through. And I'll never forget getting onto the quayside on the other end. And I could hardly stand, and there were so many people there. Um, because they had experienced exactly the same storm. They were kind of like coming to see what those um, guys in the F1, when they have their crashes, what they look like afterwards. And I'll never forget, you know, being out at sea for, a lot, for 50 days without your wife is a long time. And the very first person that I hugged was my beautiful wife. Okay, that's not Kim, if you're starting to think that, okay. So I put my arms around Kim, and I say to her, I whisper in her ear, I say, Kim, if I ever say I want to do something like this again, please, you've got to absolutely stop me, okay. <laughs> so it's a bit like asking um, a mother that's just given birth to a child naturally without any drugs, if they'd like to just quickly go and do that again. It's not going to happen, okay. So Kim looked at me, she's a feisty Eastern Cape girl. She looked at me and she said, Pete, don't worry, I absolutely will. So let's fast forward. A couple of weeks later, I'm back in South Africa. I'm starting to think about the next expedition. It dawns on me, no African has ever rowed any ocean solo before. So this has obviously got to be done. I'd, I'd like to be the person that does that. Now, this is a thought, okay? So it's not anything that I'm expressing at the moment because Kim is a feisty woman. And so I start thinking about this until I can't hold it in anymore. Now, one day I get home and I say, Kim, come sit down. There's something that you and I need to chat about. And we sat down and we had this conversation about doing the next row solo. And uh, at the end of the conversation, she fixes me um, with a stare and she looks at me and she says, Pete, you know what? You must go and do this row. <laughs> I will never, ever stop you from achieving that dream and that vision that you have for your life, both personally or professionally, because for me to do so would diminish you as a person. She said, so go for it. She said, but be warned. How's that for an amazing wife? Yeah? And so two years later, there I am, on my new boat, in the same race, a boat that I called Yamazela. And how apt that name was going to become only time would tell. And again, I rode her in shifts of one and a half hours on, one and a half hours off. Except when I went off for the hour and a half, there was no Billy keeping that boat going in the right direction. And that boat would be left to the wind and the current and nature, whatever nature could throw at me during that time. It was the toughest time of that expedition. And I did that 24 hours a day. So that's the 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 those sessions. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 76 days. Now they say, if you want to know yourself, spend 24 hours in isolation. <laughs> and then try 76 I guarantee you, there is not a single person, not one of you, sitting here tonight that would not learn a great deal about themselves after spending 76 days alone in a rowing boat. <laughs> and if you had to say to me, so Peter, come on man, put all of your expeditions together and everything that you've experienced around them and come out at the other end with the greatest lesson that you have learned, what would it be? 
from all this time that you've had. And I'm sure all of you have got your greatest lessons as well. And I would have to say this, that the greatest lesson that I have ever, ever learned is that you and I, all of us here this evening, have been incredibly made physically and mentally way better than we could ever, ever, ever begin to imagine. But, Cordois, it is only when we are faced by adversity or we are faced by great challenges, there's a difference, or where we are faced by that moment of imminent disaster, where we are boxing way above our weight categories. I know that sounds all cliched, but it's true. When we are able to overcome that moment or that adversity, that challenge, and then we do it again and again and we form these processes, we put these processes in place in our lives and we do it again and again and again, do we begin to realize how incredibly well we've been made and what potential we have? And it doesn't matter who you are sitting, sitting here this evening. It doesn't matter what you've achieved in your life. There's just so much more. I always say, so in this journey that we're going on, this story, this amazing story that we want to tell one day, the expeditions that I plan, the first starting point is, for me, is I've got to believe that I can actually do that if I do the right things in order to achieve that. And whenever I've started, I've always said yes before I know that I can actually do it. It's a bit silly, but then I put stuff in place. So I had one storm on this row, and it lasted six days, um, and five nights, and it was an incredibly challenging um, time for me, and I had to really ask myself deep questions about why I was doing what I was doing and whether I had it in me um, to continue doing what I was doing. And I did. And six weeks later, I'm going to talk about one or two of those things just now, and six weeks later, after that storm, exactly six weeks, I got close to Antigua. This is the night before. Um, sunset on the last night. And I want to tell you that last evening coming into Antigua was, uh, it was, it was quite an amazing situation for me because as much as I wanted to be in, I also didn't. Because it was one of the only times in my life that I could be so singularly focused on something without the clutter of the world around me. Such connection with the ocean and fish and birds and stars and it was an amazing time. But obviously, I needed to come in and see my family. And this is the moment of crossing that finish line in Antigua, 76 days later. I love this photograph. Minus 18 kilograms. You can see I'm quite a scroll oaky as it is. Minus 18 kilograms of body weight here. Pretty much like a prisoner of war, okay? I don't know if you can see my seat. It's got this, this much foam underneath it because my poor backside was struggling tremendously. But underneath my boat there, I have six fish living with me. You saw a picture of them just now, Dorado. I'm going to tell you an amazing story about them. So I'll never forget at the end of that um, expedition, that row, I get into English Harbour, get onto the quayside, 76 days is a long time to be alone out at sea, grab my wife Kim again, I put my arms around her and I say, Kim, now seriously, <laughs> if I ever say I want to do something like this again, please, you've got to stop me. And she looked at me and she said, Pete, don't worry, this time I absolutely will. <laughs> okay, okay. So let's fast forward. A couple of weeks later, we're back in South Africa. She comes to me and she says, Pete, you owe me. So I go, yeah, Kim, of course I'm indebted to you. 
I said, what's up? She says, next expedition is mine. So I said, okay, fantastic. So she ran from our house along the coast to Mozambique, a marathon a day. And then at the Mozambique border, got onto a mountain bike and mountain biked the inland borders of South Africa to just below Grabi's Falls, like the southeastern border of Namibia. About 3,200 k's that ride. And then she kayaked from there on the Harip Orange River to the mouth, Alexandria Bay, and then put her running shoes back on and then ran along the west coast and the east coast um, back to East London. Incredible journey, 6,800 kilometers. And you think I'm nuts. <laughs> so my daughter, <laughs> Hannah, the other day, she's quite sedentary. I don't know where that gene comes from. Um, <clears throat> and okay, so Kim and I argue about it all the time. She, uh, I'm trying to get her to do a mountain bike uh, race and she's grumpy about it and she's busy packing her bag grumpily and I hear her under her breath going, if only I was born into a normal family, <laughs> this would never have happened. Oh, it's tough in Africa. But during Kim's expedition, I get a phone call from a good mate of mine, Bromwell Herbie is one of the two guys that have ran the entire length of the Great Wall of China. There are quite a few walls of China, I don't know if you know that, but this is the main one. 4,300 kilometers, they ran, him and David Gray ran 89 consecutive marathons. Incredible, incredible um, adventure. He phones me up and he says, Pete, I have an opportunity to go down to Antarctica to take part in an international race to the South Pole to commemorate the first two people ever to get there. I don't know if you know the story. Um, Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, arrived there in December 1911. And then Sir Robert Falcon Scott and his British team arrived there 35 days later in January 1912. Um, so this was going to be a celebration of their, um, their discovery or their getting to the South Pole first. Another international race 100 years later. Do you want to be part of it? And I go, I'm on the phone to him and I'm getting all excited. And he says, so I go, Brom, of course I want to do this race with you. I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't? I said, but I'm on an expedition now and we've got three months to go before we have to go down to Antarctica to do this race. It's not enough time to go down and win the race. I've a little bit of a competitive gene in me. I said, so long as, when I get back, we can do some training, we can do some acclimatization to cold weather, we can learn how to cross, I'd never cross-country skied in my life before, uh, and this was going to be an 888-kilometer race. Um, I said, so long as we can do that in that time, I'm in. And so, for the next few months, we uh, spent some time in Iceland. This is on a glacier called Longical, which means Long Glacier. It's the second highest glacier in Iceland. It's at 3,500 meters above sea level, which is fantastic. Great training um, for the South Pole, and you'll see why um, just now. Conditions were not great for skiing, but great, obviously, to do your tent routines, putting up tent, taking down, learning how to cook in really adverse conditions, but not for skiing. Super dangerous um, in these conditions because of massive crevasse fields um, on these glaciers. You will not see them in conditions like this. And if you fall down one of them without proper um, help, um, you're not going to survive it. So the rest of the time after that training, we spent uh, pulling tires up and down our coastline. And um, this is on a beach called Sinsa Beach. And often when people see this photograph, they go, Brown Pete, you don't need to show us this photograph. We know the wheels came off Yorks a long time ago. <laughs> and then we had to get down to um, Cape Town International Airport to get onto this Russian Aleutian plane if you've landed in Cape Town December, January, and February, you'll see this plane on the tarmac. It's a Russian plane. It flies down to the Russian, um, Russian base um, right on the edge of Antarctica. 
and then from there the scientists go to their, their respective um, scientific bases. And um, so this time it was our turn, seven international teams and, and some scientists we got into this plane. We flew down to Antarctica. Uh, we spent a couple of days, three actually, um, very nice days down at the Russian Novo base. Beautiful weather. No catabatic winds, nice and calm, cold, but like minus five, minus 10 degrees centigrade, but sun nice and out, no wind, and all that food. So we, we spent that time just packing and unpacking, packing and unpacking, because once we left there, no more help. So it had to be right, fuel, food, um, etc. And all that food there is food mixed with, does anybody want to guess? Remember I said we can't do olive oil anymore? Dates back to then. It's food mixed with butter. You know what the great thing about butter is? You should try it. There are three different types. Normal butter, herb butter, and garlic butter. <laughs> so now we could take crushed uh, black biltong and mix it with herb butter, crushed um, drovos or nuts and raisins and mix it with uh, herb butter, normal butter, garlic butter. So we'd be skiing along. Um, there's not enough time to eat to, in your tent routine to eat enough calories that you need. So you've got to eat while you're trekking. Um, at the start line, it was minus 35 degrees uh, centigrade. That was the warmest it got. So it's very difficult to stop and eat. So you've got to trek and eat because um, stopping is dangerous and it's extremely cold. Um, so we, had, we popped these like frozen balls in our mouth. It was, it was amazing. Once we had done that, we left with uh, all seven other teams um, on a trek just to get to the start line. And it took us 10 days of trekking 16 hours a day just to get to the start line. And I've put this photograph up here because it's the two teams that were pipped to win the race. The team closest to you, that's the British team. Out to show that it should have been Scott who got to the pole first 100 years ago. I don't know if you know, there's great debate um, in the adventure world about who was right to go. Um, because Amundsen was actually up on his way up to the North Pole. And then he changed his mind at the last minute, sent a message to Scott. He says, I'm going south. That's all he said. And then it became a, a race between two nations. And the team ahead, that is the Norwegian team, ice guards of the race. One of those guys is the person I did the North Pole trip with. We became good friends um, after this expedition. So, trekking for 10 days with three months of experience, guess who we hung out with? These guys. Yes, and we learned a lot from them. Especially about body temperature. You know, you can sweat in minus 40 degrees centigrade if you're walking hard enough and you've got the proper kit on. And if you sweat and it freezes on you, it's extremely dangerous because that's when you're going to get frostbite. So these guys, subconsciously, would be trekking unzipped because you've got zips everywhere to control your temperature. And they'd be just, they'd be trekking and they'd just zip and unzip and zip and unzip. They're not conscious about it at all. And we were just, it was incredible, one of those things um, that we learned on this journey. But Antarctica is an amazing place. You know, um, we, we see National Geographics and we see all the penguins and the leopard seals and um, beautiful um, icebergs, etc. But Antarctica is way more than that. It is known as, on average, the highest. Isn't that weird? So you go from sea ice level up through these glaciers over a mountain range onto a high plateau that starts at 3,200 meters above sea level. That plateau, the highest point, 4,600 meters. The South Pole itself is 3,500 meters. That's twice the height of Johannesburg. So it's super high. That plateau is greater in area, just the plateau, is greater in area than the United States of America. 
It's a big piece of ice at the bottom of our planet. When you get up past that mountain range, this is what Antarctica looks like. 100% like that, devoid of life. It is a freezing, white, dry, super dry desert of ice. An amazing place to be. And then the race organizers drew a line in the ice and snow, and they pulled out a rifle. They got us to line up just like this, all seven teams. They let off a shot. They said, Sayonara, chaps, we'll see you at the South Pole. As you see it there, seven international teams, the least prepared team of them was Brahm and I. Not because um, I'm bragging, <laughs> because we don't brag about being least prepared, but we only had three months of training. The next least prepared team had trained for two years. Most of these guys had been to the North Pole. Some of them had been down to the South Pole just to train for, these, for this race. Their budgets um, allowed them to. Day five of the race, let's fast forward, day five of the race. Day five, there were just three teams standing. And we didn't know it until we got to the halfway mark. At the halfway mark, um, a GPS point, we had to meet uh, a British doctor and two Norwegian Special Forces guys and we'd spend 24 hours with them um, so that they could check us out physically and also just to get a compulsory 24-hour um, break. Uh, because you do silly things when you are suffering with sleep deprivation. So that was kind of one way that they were going to control things. So how do we do it? Um, when I think of business and I think of the journey that you've been on, Alec, over the last nine years, I think of what drives us to get to where we are right now. And I think of all of you and your businesses and, and the successes that you've created. And, you know, that, that significant predictor in our ability to achieve success is grit and perseverance and endurance. But that doesn't just happen. There's got to be something that inspires us. And that word is passion. And I love this photograph, because look at this photograph. That is Antigua Island in the background, 25 nautical miles away um, from us breaking the world record and winning this race. My eyes are sunken deep in the back of my head here. If you had asked me what six times three was here, I would not be able to answer you. That's how bad it was. To get to this point took a huge amount of suffering and sacrifice and struggle. And you see, there needs to be something that motivates and inspires us to put up with that, to do whatever it takes to achieve what you want to achieve. So the story you're going to tell in a year's time, you know, what is, what is that thing that inspires us to endure hardship in order to, in, um, to achieve that thing? And that word is passion. I don't like that word. I also love it. And, it, and it's, it forms the basis of my new book, Grin and Bear It, which is coming out at the end of next month. It's with the publishers now. Um, because I think people misunderstand what that word passion means. You know, you'll go to a conference and they'll say, you'll get some motivational speaker going, you guys need to be passionate about what you do. And of course, yeah. But what does it truly mean? Let me tell you what it means to me by telling you a story. Now again, I'm going to ask you to picture the scene. Put yourself on that seat. The hands raw and blistered almost to the bone. And curled them around the uh, oars. You saw a picture earlier. You'll see again just now. Your backside has got pressure source on it, salt source. Everywhere where the sun doesn't shine, big rashes from all the salt. You're lonely. You're, you, by the way, you're not going to see pictures of that, so don't worry. Those are for close friends. You're lonely. You're exhausted. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. It's raining. The waves breaking over the boat. Boat's getting tossed around like a cork in a rapid. 
It's exhausting. I guarantee you, at that point, there's a little red gremlin sitting on your shoulder, and I know some of you know him very, very well. He's speaking to you. This is what he says to me. Pete, what you're doing is completely nuts. You need to stop this nonsense. You need to right now get back in that cabin, rest until the sun comes up. When the sun comes up, have something to eat, and then get on your satellite phone and phone Marine Rescue Service Center in Falmouth in the UK, and then get them to organize the closest ship to you and come get you the hell out of there. Because it's nuts. And it's, that's the voice every morning. My darkest hours have always been that time where I've been tested. Then it's giving you reasons why you should do that, not just telling you to do it. Give you an example of what it says to me. Pete, to row another 24 hours like this is physically impossible. And that is exactly what it feels like. Exhausted to the nth degree. Pete, if you go through another storm, like you've just been through, you may not survive it. You may not see Kim again. You may not hold Hannah's hand down the aisle one day when she gets married. <laughs> when she's 40, I've told her. Yeah. You see, the only thing that will allow you to ignore that voice, to finish that shift, as if you're going to win the race and break the world record, get back into that cabin for exactly 90 minutes. Do whatever you need to do in that 90 minutes. Eat, sleep, fix stuff, do whatever you need to do. And then get back out there and curl those hands around those oars again. Put that backside back on that seat. Grit your, bite your lip until you get used to the pain. It doesn't go away. And row for another hour and a half is what? How much do you actually want to do this? This journey of ours. And that, if you can say, I will do whatever it takes for me to achieve this thing, then... That is what passion is. That is that thing that inspires endurance and motivation for me. And for us, it's many, many things. In this race, it was the will to win. Want to break the world record, want to win the race. And other expeditions, South Pole, just want to finish. Just want to survive. That was the goal. So that is what passion is. Passion ultimately is how much do you want to do it. And then one of the other greatest lessons I've learned is that is so absolutely vital. These journeys that I've been on, the reason why I can tell you the stories that I'm telling, and we've all heard this before, is not because of me. It is because of other people in my life. People that have inspired me and motivated me and taught me from when I was a kid. Enabled me. Wakened those endurance genomes inside, inside me physically. It's allowed to change something inside my brain. It's allowed me to do the expeditions. So whenever I, I think about doing this journey, or an expedition, I always think, you know, what is the team of people that I'm going to surround myself with? People that share the same principles and values as, as me. Things like honesty, integrity, accountability. We speak for hours on those things. But I'm going to touch on this one thing quickly, and that's why I've got this photograph in here. And that is accountability. When Brahm asked me to do this race with him, I said to him, one of the things I said to him in that first conversation, and I've done it on every single expedition and up, it is just, I think, one of the greatest things that I've ever done on my expeditions. As I, as I said this, Brahm, I will do this expedition with you on one condition, that during this expedition, 
your focus is going to be to look after me. Sounds weird, eh? I want you to look after me. If I'm not eating properly, make sure I eat. If I'm dehydrating, make sure I hydrate. If I'm feeling demotivated, inspire me, motivate me, tell me a joke. And you know what? I'm going to do exactly the same thing for you. My job on this journey is going to be to make sure that you're okay. I've got your back, Bron. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to make sure you're okay. We're going to do this thing together. We're much stronger in this journey together than if we are alone. And I always say this to teams that I speak to. Imagine if we could all connect like this within our businesses, within our families, in relationships we have our brothers and sisters and wives, husbands. I've got your back. Such a critical part of our journey. Not just in preparation, thousands of things that we needed to get um, together. But one of the things that I also said to Brahm is that we knew we really need to connect and, and connect in such a special way, Brahm, that I trust you with everything that I have. And I can absolutely know that when things are not going well, when we are at the end of our tether, that you have the capacity to help me and I have the capacity to help you. And it's a long story. We could tell, uh, um, Alec was talking about, I've got the eight summit. I've got some books here if anybody wants a copy. This story and many, many others are inside this book um, that I don't have enough time to speak about tonight. Okay, so all, all the journeys, you know, we suffer. There's lots of suffering happening um, on these journeys. That's light frostbite, some serious frostbite. These are my hands. Um, during the row. Um, but it's not all doom and gloom. There are amazing stories that happen on, s on some of these journeys. This is, I quickly want to tell you about this. This is uh, Simon. This is a juvenile storm petrel. Landed on my boat on that six-day storm on my solo row. I named him Simon after Paul Simon and Lady Blacksmith Mabaza, their song, um, Homeless. Uh, he was homeless. He needed a place to stay. He stayed with me for three days um, on that row. When I got him from outside and I put him into the cabin, he was terrified. He like scampered off into a part of the cabin. You can see where my sleeping bag is next to me. That's the hatch leading outside. This is me on parachute anchor in that storm in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, and I fell asleep and I woke up a couple of hours later and there's Simon walking around that boat. It was an incredible experience having him with me. It meant more than just um, a bird on my boat. And that's also another long story. Two of the six Dorado that lived with me for six weeks. Now, I know you're going to think I'm nuts when I tell you this. But you can go and watch the documentary, Not Alone. And this, this, the reason why I called it Not Alone is because it's not about me. So this journey is about people and things and experiences that I had. Straight after that storm, I noticed these Dorado living underneath my boat. And they would go and hunt flying fish the whole day and then come back and sit underneath my boat. And at night, they'd be under my boat, under my oars. But every sunrise and sunset after that storm, they would jump out the water. At first, it started 20, 30 meters away from the boat. And I couldn't understand what they were doing. And they would jump out, bum, and they would jump out, bum. And as the weeks went past, that would happen closer and closer and closer to the boat. Until I recognized something. Because until they got really, really close, like three or four meters away, then they would jump out the water and they would make eye contact with me. Because now they're close enough to, okay, now eye contact, not like this, okay. This was the one eye. Okay, like this. Hard to show. But they would make eye contact with me. And I started realizing that these fish were connecting with me in a weird way. 
Because if I wasn't on deck during that sunrise and sunset shift, they would swim up to my rudder and hit the rudder. Bam, bam. Or they'd jump out the water. You saw them jumping out the water in that video. And slap their bodies hard against the water. Bop, bop. Like that, make a noise. Until I got out, until they made eye contact with me in that weird way, they wouldn't stop. Isn't that insane? You can see some amazing footage of that. I've got it on my YouTube channel for anybody if they want to go in and have a look at it. Incredible journey. An incredible part of the journey. People say, what is the most beautiful place you've ever been to? Right here. No big city, no Maldives, no nothing. Right here. Let me explain why. I'm going to have to ask you to picture the scene again. Three o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. No moon, no clouds. The water is like that. It's a mirror. Absolutely flat. There is not a sound. Nothing. It is 100% silent. Nothing. It's a weird sound, believe it or not. The sea is full of bioluminescence. It's a phosphoretic kind of plankton. If you're from the coast, maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've been out at sea at night and you've seen it. You just touch the water like this at night and it lights up this bright green color. And sometimes it gets so thick that when you do your draw stroke through the water, at the end of the stroke, instead of it going splish, it goes like that, like oil. And at night, that lights up this bright green color, this phosphoretic color. And, as, and those swirls just go big green swirls past the boat like that. And then as you lift the oars out, because it's such like a mirror, as you lift the oars out and bring them back, doing your draw stroke, each water droplet that hits the surface of the water just explodes in this like green explosion. It's absolutely insane. And then you stand up on your boat. Just remember the silence. And you look around. You look up at the stars. You cannot make out the constellations because there's just too many stars. It's just too bright. There's no moon. There's meteors flying all the time. It's unbelievable. And you look at the horizon where you think the stars are going to end, but it doesn't end there. It ends right on the edge of your boat because it's like a mirror. And you're standing in this cocoon of stars and the fish, this dorado underneath the boat, catching this bioluminescent plankton lighting up these green torpedoes swimming around underneath your oars, underneath the boat. It's absolutely spectacular. I hope that I get to see that again one day. But I've told Kim, no more rowing. I'm just going gonna, gonna to finish off with this one now because we're going to run out of time. I love this point. It's called You Snooze, You Lose. Two types of discipline in me uh, that I have in my life. The one is external discipline, the one is self-discipline. External discipline is me and Billy waking each other up, like in this row. Every hour and a half saying, okay, Billy, it's you to come row, and then him telling me. It's great. We won the race, broke the world record. But put yourself in this boat again here, three o'clock in the morning. You're inside the cabin. Your alarm clock, you're on your own. You're lonely, you're exhausted. Your alarm clock is going, do 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 it's a proper test. Because what do you do? You exhaust your hands off, rotten. It boils on your backside. But you want to win the race, doesn't matter what. Whatever it takes. Well, you've got to switch that alarm clock off. You've got to suck it up. 
You've got to get back out there. You've got to put that backside back in the seat, curl those hands around the oars and row for another hour and a half. Because if you don't, your competitors are going to overtake you. But here's the thing. If you press snooze button, nobody in the whole world will ever know. It's just you. <laughs> yes. It's a toughie. And another thing guaranteed. If you press snooze button, nothing will be the same again on that journey, ever, until you start something new and you decide not to press the snooze button. So it's something that I've learned. I believe that if, and when I speak to youngsters about this, I really believe that if we can teach the younger generation to be more self-disciplined in what they do, they are absolutely able to achieve greatness in their lives. Or it's one of the things that they can use to achieve greatness. I had two things written on my boat, up on the bulkhead of my boat. One, this, is, this will end, like my talk right now. This will end. Whenever I got into really tough situations, that's what I would look at. Whenever I had current against me, I had current against me for two weeks on my solo row. Um, I would say, this is going to end. I just need to keep going. Two, I'm never, ever, ever alone. Not for one second. Whenever I was really struggling, I could put a, pick up my satellite phone and speak to somebody um, that could inspire me and motivate me. So people often ask me, so Pete, why do you do what you do? And that's not the reason why I do what I do. This is what a man will do to get away from the wife for a while. So it's a complex question. <clears throat> but I suppose I do what I do because that's the vision that I have for my life, the dream that I have for my life. However, when I'm sitting on my sled, and I don't know if I'm going to live my, the next few minutes out, or if I'm in my rowing boat in a storm and I don't know if I'm going to live the storm out, I don't think about my dream or my vision or people that I um, raise funds for, charities, etc. I think about this one thing, and this is what motivates me in my life. I think about the team of people that I've surrounded myself with. I think, what would they say to me right now at this point to get me up, to get me going, to get me back, to get me to survive, to get me to be able to tell the story? That ultimately is the thing that motivates me. I want to thank you very much um, for having me, Alec. Really, thank you to you and your business team for inviting me here. It's been a great privilege. I hope I get to meet all of you in person over the next few days. Thank you very much.